you would turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18 is uh, where we are this morning together. Uh, last Sunday, we, we launched a new series called Conflicted. Uh, as we, in our, in our own lives, seek to live peaceable, right? And you look at Matthew 18, Jesus is sharing with his disciples... Really, and showing how the community of faith is to relate with one another regarding conflict, disagreement, even sin, and sinning towards one another. And when you look at the kingdom of God, it's marked by, over and over again, peace or Jesus calling us to live peaceable lives, harmony with God and harmony with other people. To be a community of reconciliation um, that, that broadcasts reconciliation and is in conflict, really, to the world around us that is, that is marked by division and hostility and all of that, we as the church should be an outpost, a lighthouse for what it looks like to live peaceable with one another. And last week, we started off how Jesus was calling us to have the humility of a child, if you will, that that is one of the markers of living a peaceable life and living outside of conflict and resolving conflict and hostility and sinning towards one another is a life marked by humility, right? And what we're going to get at today is, is part of the struggle... I would say, merely at the, at, the, at, the, at the root of all struggles in conflict with one another is a little, uh, it's a troublesome thing called sin. That we are marked by sin. We are born into it ever since what happened in the garden happened. Now we, our, our lives with each other have completely been shattered and with God. Because sin now lives and dwells in us. And we know that we've been, we've been redeemed from that, but we're still living in a sinful world that we have to wrestle through to live out the kingdom of God. And I love um, archery. Uh, I'm a big hunter, if you didn't know that. And I love archery specifically because of a lot of different hosts of different things. Um, it's much more challenging. It helps me not think about what's going on in life. And it's a way that I can just not think. And um, it's challenging. A lot of different things I love about it. But um, it's interesting, in archery, if, if you want to shoot accurately, you have to have the right setup. You have to have on your bow everything lined up perfectly. You have to paper tune it, all this different stuff. So that when you shoot, the further you shoot, if you're off by the slightest amount, you're going to be way off the mark. The, the, the farthest I've ever shot an animal is 63 yards with my bow. But you have to be very tuned in for that to happen because you might be shooting at 10 yards, and it seems like, man, you're really on. The further you go out, 20, 30, 40, 50 yards, the further what is off begins to glaringly show because something is not correct on your bow, and you're shooting to the right, the left, up, down, whatever it is. You're literally missing the mark. And you know what the definition of sin is in Scripture? It's missing the mark. And it's fascinating when you look at it because... In your own life, like archery, if there are things off in you, broken in you, or if I'll just go out and say, if you're allowing sin to, to reign in your life, to take up household in your life, to have different aspects that other people might not see in your life, it may not be glaringly obvious to you here right on in your own personal life, but man, the further you go out in your life, there's going to be radical, radical um, problems in your life that will impact 
your relationship with God. It will impact yourself. And one of the things we want to talk about today, it will impact other people. Amen. It seems like for you, it's not that big of a deal. This is my pet sin that nobody knows about. And I keep it in the closet where no one can see it. Or, or man, I, this is my issue and it's my struggle and it doesn't harm anyone else. And, and I just want to show you today that the sin that we allow to reign in our lives, to take up uh, a residence in our lives, ra has radical implications on our own soul and on the people around us. And I want you to know that your sin is not your sin problem. It is a problem that will impact your relationship with God, other people, yourself, the community of faith as a whole. And Jesus ended his last teaching, what we looked at last week, with this tension, this warning of not allowing your actions to cause other believers to stumble in following Jesus and fulfilling the kingdom of God. And so, man, when you look at it, Jesus says, we're going to look at it again today, that people have a role in helping others experience life and a flourishing life and being a part of the kingdom of God. And I, 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 in an individualistic culture we talk about, we'll talk about it today, it's not talked about enough in the church, but for you, man, Jesus over and over again says that you have a role in either helping or hindering other people's faith. And there's a responsibility that we have there. And that's what I want you to see today. Christians should help build up, not hinder the faith of others. That my, my job as a follower of Jesus is to help build up other believers, as it says over and over in Scripture, not to hinder other believers. And sometimes we even do that by not knowing because of the brokenness and sin in our own lives that we think is not that big of a deal. And so we're going to look at it today in Matthew chapter 18, this idea of what it looks like for us to be a help to other people rather than a hindrance. And I'm sure that you sitting here or you're watching online, you've experienced something with other people that has been either really helpful in your walk with Jesus or it's been a hindrance in your walk with Jesus. I'm sure that there's tons of people here today with stories where, where you've had a, a serious determinant in your life or your life with Jesus because... If we're honest, what someone else has done has caused you to deter in your walk with Jesus. I, I will never get over the fact that I, I realize that my life could have radical implications because of where God has placed me as a pastor and a leader in a church. That my sinfulness and my brokenness could actually be very harmful spiritually to other people. Maybe more than you guys. Because I'm looked at as a leader within the spiritual community. Right? And I have my own marks by people in my life, maybe not leaders, some leaders, who have marked me in a not good way because of sinfulness in their own life that has had a, a devastating effect on my own life and always going back to the fact that they're not Jesus and I'm called to follow Jesus, not man. Man's broken. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a, a deterrent or a distraction. And if we're really honest, I promise you, that if you really um, do some, some excavating of your own heart and your life, you have probably hindered someone else's walk with Jesus in some way. Parents, I promise you, there's been some hindrances and there's some, been some help as um, parents. I, I promise from your spouse, there's been some hindrances and there's been some help. Friends, there might be some hindrances, there might be some help. Family members, 
I want, to, I want us to call, our, the call I want us today, uh, to adhere to today is that Christians are meant to help each other, not hinder each other. And I think it all comes back to the idea of the sin and brokenness in our own lives. And so how do we build up the community of Christ? How do we fulfill what Jesus is calling here? He, he lays out in verses 7 and following just a couple of things that I want to draw our attention to. So if you look with me in just in verse 7, starting out, the first thing, he says this, Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation, temptations come, but woe to the one whom the temptation comes. So the first thing is, don't lead others into sin. So this is like pretty obvious from what I've already been talking about. Don't lead others into sin. You remember last week, this is exactly what Jesus ends with in the text, and now he's picking up here in the same thought. He said last week, it's better for you to have a millstone around your neck and to be cast into the sea than to lead one of these little ones into sin. And now he goes right in the same thought with two warnings. We're starting off with the word woe. Like that's not like riding a horse like woe. This has got a pretty profound meaning. Woe here is an indicator of intense anger or grief and as many times uses a statement of prophetic or divine judgment. So at face value, we start off by just paying attention, right? Because when it says woe to you, it's a sign that this is something that really angers God. This is something that is immensely important to God. This is something, as we'll see in a moment, brings about a level of judgment. It's serious. It's not something to take in lightheartedly. And he, he gives a couple of warnings here, or woes. The first, he gives a warning to the world. He says, man, the system of human rebellion under the enemy's control in the world stands in opposition of the kingdom of God and all that God has uh, to move forward for the kingdom of God. And it brings about temptation. You living in the world you're living in, I promise you that is controlled by Satan himself it is bringing about temptation in your life. Every day, I'm tempted to be a consumer. I'm tempted to live after the things the world says it, it, it will fill my soul. I'm tempted all the time by the system and structures that we find in the world. And he says, whoa, to the world, right? The word used here in verse 6 is the Greek word scandalon in the Greek. It's where we get our word scandalist or scandal. And really what he, what he means here is that, man, it's a means of a trap or a stumbling block, but also refers to, to action or circumstance that leads astray to sin. And so he's saying, man, our job is not to be a scandal to someone else that's leading others to sin or apostasy or false beliefs. And he's warning us, he's warning those listening that sin and culture of sin, which exists can cause to lead people astray. But then second, the woe is not just to the world and the, the sense of the world that we're living in, it's directly pointed at us. I mean, Jesus says to his disciples, right? He, he recognized there's a, in the sovereign plan of God, he allows us to experience temptations. Do you realize that? In the sovereign plan of God in your life, he's going to allow you to walk through temptations. Being tempted is not a sin. Giving in to temptation is where you find yourself in sin. And in the sovereign plan of God set out here in the text, it says, man, there's going to be the presence of temptation. The difference here is that what Jesus is warning of when he says, whoa, 
is that we might not be the means by which temptation comes through other people. That your actions, my actions, might not be the, the means by which other people experience temptation in their walk with Jesus. And, and in it, God's judgment stands as the, like this, against sin, like, man, God's judgment is here if we walk in this direction. This is how we live. He says, man, may we not be the people that are bringing about temptation in their lives. We should avoid, what he's saying, of being a stumbling block to other people. What I find fascinating, the reason why I bring up the first woe, is he says, woe to the world and the system and structure of temptation in the world that is controlled by Satan himself. And then just after that, he says, woe to us as believers or as disciples, that we might not be the means by which other people are tempted and do you see what's happening there? I'm reading between the lines. And man, when I live in such a way that I am the means by which other people experience temptation, I am living and I am functioning on the wrong team. I'm living after the ways of Satan. I'm living after the ways of the world. I'm no longer the person that's causing reconciliation and peace and love and joy and building up other people in the community of faith. Now I... I'm someone who is actually hindering the kingdom of God, and I'm living in opposition of what I've been called to live out. Now, I love these texts because it speaks to the garbage that we're living out in this world. And one of the things that needs to be thrown out the window in the church, I spoke a little bit of it to it last week, is you live, I live, in the Western culture, we live in a very highly individualistic culture it's all about me mine what I can get and I'm really not worried about other people I don't need to submit myself to other people I don't need other people to submit themselves to me it's all about me it's how I feel what I feel what I believe it's all about individualism and when you look at following Jesus it's actually quite the opposite than what we find in the world around us and Jesus reminded us here that you and I have a responsibility to actually help other people continue in their walk with Jesus and not to hinder them. And part of the way we do that is by approaching life with a lens towards how our actions affect other people. And so you think about that for your own life. When you think about the way you're living, do you live in, in, in the world where you're thinking about your actions might have ramifications on other people's lives? Do you think that? Do you process that very often? Do I process that very often? That the way you live or you don't live as a follower of Jesus has ramifications on other people in your life. And that's what we should be actually thinking about as we walk through life. Parents, do you understand that your faith or lack of faith, your private sin that they can sense and see and experience, do, do you understand that your life with Jesus or your lack thereof of life with Jesus has ramifications on your children. That more is caught than taught. You might tell them you love Jesus, but do they see it in your everyday life? Do you talk about Jesus? Do you pray? Do, do, you, do you walk into moments with faith and expectation that God is going to show up? Do you realize that your actions might not be the sin that is in your life that you're unwilling to get rid of in your life is having ramifications on your children. Spouses, do you know the same? How many of you in this room know exactly what you can say to your spouse just to get them to... And how many times do you use it? 
How many times are your actions towards your spouse building up their faith? Or how many times your own brokenness that you don't want to deal with or you're struggling to deal with has ramifications on your spouse, your coworkers, you can go on the list, your friends, church course. I know people that are sitting in this room right now that are in opposition with one another. And many times it comes back to my brokenness. I want it my way. I'm selfish. I'm unrelenting and being forgiving or forgiving other people. And our actions have ramifications on other people and other believers. And Jesus says, may it not be so that we're hindering other people's walks, causing in them to sin rather than living to build up. And, and the Apostle Paul brings up the same idea in the church of Corinth about eating food that's sacrificed to idols. And the Apostle Paul recognizes that, that this ultimately doesn't make someone godly or ungodly. He's saying, no, we're living under the, 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 under the grace of God and we can totally eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. You can't, and some thought, that, no, you definitely cannot do that. You, you, you definitely can't eat that meat. And so, hey, the Apostle Paul sees this and his approach to this issue I think is profound about this, this obscure thing, but it gives us a lens into what we're talking about here. He thought, man, I, I, I freely, through the grace of God, don't need to be worried about whether I eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. It's not going to make me less godly, but if it's going to cause someone else to sin or their conscience to sin or them to be like fall into sin, it, it's not worth it, right? This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. But some, through former association with idols, the old way, eat food as really offered to idols. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So their conscience is telling them that they shouldn't do it. It's still okay to do, but their conscience is telling them that they shouldn't. Food will not commend, uh, will not commend us to God. There's his thoughts on the idea. We are no worse off if we do eat or we don't eat. But take care that this right of yours, I cannot stress that enough, this right of yours, we're living in a day and age that people constantly are saying, this is my right. And I don't care how it impacts anyone else. This is my right. Apostle Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge Eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged of his conscience as weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother of, for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Did you hear that? Did I hear that? That this isn't just some small issue. You're actually sinning against Christ. I am as well. When we actually are hindering a brother and sister in Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You can unpack the whole thing in just one sermon. We can take the time just, just for that. But I just bring it up because I want to point to the lens with which the Apostle Paul deals with this issue. For us today, I'm not sure I'm going to offend anybody if I go home and have a steak today. If I do, I don't care. I'm just kidding. 
I just won't eat in your presence. It's fine. But what he's recognizing here is personal freedom. But he's saying the point is recognizing responsibility, influence of others, and how your choices can either hinder or help people in their walk of faith. Here's the thing. I'll be very honest with you. (laughs) Scripture gives a lot of freedom to you as a believer in Jesus in your journey of following Jesus. There is not a passage for every single thing in your life. Gives a lot of freedom, right? You're not finding a Bible verse that tells you what movies and television shows you can and cannot watch. Oh, sweet, Scripture's been updated. Proverbs 38 now says this Netflix show is good, this one is not. No, you won't find it, right? Whether you should have a glass of wine with dinner or not. It's not going to tell you you should or you shouldn't. What clothes you should wear. What clothes you should wear on Sunday. Whether, um, what words are okay to say and not okay to say in certain moments. How you are called and should steward and engage social media and social media with your children. There's no chapter and there's no verse. There's tons of other Christians that will tell you what you should and shouldn't do. But here's the thing. A lot of these things are governed by wisdom and conscience. As I spend time with Jesus, wisdom is gleaned from the scriptures. My conscience is built up through the character of Christ, through the word of God. And much of these, if you will, gray areas that there's not a chapter and a verse, a command, are governed around the idea of wisdom and conscience. And I'll just be honest with you, there's other brothers and sisters in Christ where their wisdom and their conscience is different than yours. And that's awesome. That's awesome and unbelievable, right? But may ours not be the the way of hindering someone else's faith, right? May may ours be the one that's, that's, that's building up, whether it's eating meat in Scripture or our online comments on social media. We must seek to be cautious because we never want to be the hindrance of someone's faith. We want to be the building up of someone's faith, right? And this is abnormal to to what you're living, the culture, the the, the temptation of the world around you. It's abnormal, right? It's not normal for you. What you'll hear all around you is, this is my right. I don't really care what someone thinks. This is my right. This is what I should do. This is, that seems like more of a them problem than a me problem. Rather than living and breathing with an impact of saying, how am I impacting not only believers but the world around me? And how are my actions, even my freedoms, impacting the people that see me? And then you go a step further. How are my my sinful actions impacting those around me? I I would compel you this week to find some time and just to sit down. We don't do this enough in quiet Close your eyes if you get distracted and sit silent in the presence of God and seriously ask the Lord, Lord, look at some of the rhythms of my life, the practices of my life with my time, my activities, my money, social media, 
and what impact negatively or positively are these things potentially having on people that I have influence in, my kids, my family, my friends, strangers I work with. And if you find things that the, I promise you the spirit of God and your conscience will bring to light, confess and repent of those things before the Lord. Ask him to help you to submit to his way because I guarantee you it's not easy. It's not easy for me at all. So the second way that Jesus says, hey, the way that we can be a help rather than a hindrance is not only just to not lead others to sin, but there's a big part of it and it leads us back to removing our own sin. Like in order to not lead other people to sin, I have to remove sin in my own life. I have to actually deal with the things that are in the depths of my soul. Look what it says in verse 8 of Matthew 18. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. We're going to have some baskets in the back afterwards for this if you want to <laughs> partake. Um, <laughs> it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye and with, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell fire. Those are some pretty serious texts. There's a reason why there was a woe. This really causes anger in the Lord. There's some judgment attached to it, and we see it here. You see, Jesus moves from being outward focused. Hey, be careful that you don't lead other people to sin. Now he turns it to his disciples to be inward focused. What about your own sin? What about the brokenness that is in you that you're allowing to rule and reign in your life he shifts his language to to his general people to now addressing directly his disciples to say hey th this is a big problem and this isn't the first time they've heard it matthew uh, 5 6 7 in the sermon on the mount jesus it, you know he shares almost word for word this exact same thing with the same very exaggerated and intense language if your hand offends you cut it off if your eye offends you or is causing hindering you cut it off. If your, if your foot is the cause of temptation and sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life. That word enter life would be a normal phrase of the next life as we enter into eternity. It's better for you to enter into eternity with one foot rather than two if it's causing you to sin, or one eye rather than two if it's causing you to sin, or one hand rather than two if it's causing you to sin. He's saying this is a really big deal. And the threat of sin is actually immensely important to Jesus here. You can see it in the text. He says, hey, I want you to take your sin seriously. And if you need to, remove a hand. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is literally saying to cut your hand off. And if I see any of that happening this week, I'm not letting you come back anymore, okay? That's not what he's saying. No, he's using hyperbolic, extreme language to point to the extreme nature and severity of what he's saying in the text. He's saying this is an eternal issue. This isn't a small potatoes thing. This is a very big deal. And we should seek to actually cause 
change in our lives rather than just living with it, right? And he's saying there's eternal consequences here. Does that mean that if you sin, you're going to hell? Does that mean that if you don't cut off your hand, you're going? No, what he's saying is, is, is a, a repetition. We'll get there in a moment. But sin is going to be a part of your life until you see Jesus one day. That's not what he's talking about. Romans 6 says, how should we, right, continue in sin that grace may abound? What do you say? God forbid. Why does he say that? Because he says, man, as a follower of Jesus who's been rescued and redeemed, there should not be a trajectory through your entire life of just living in sin with no care, no conscience, no actual conviction, but there should be change. There should be a struggle of like, man, I really want to cut my hand off because it caused me to sin or my mouth always gets me in trouble. There should be this struggling. And he's saying, man, it's deal with it because you wanting to deal with it is a sign that you're actually redeemed. You're actually a part of the kingdom of God. And so he seriously calls them. Why? Because sin has drastic, eternal, severe consequences. How terrible it would be that the sin of your life that you refuse to deal with causes your children to walk away from Jesus and its eternal ramifications. Sin has drastic consequences that are severe. And you know what, I think what Jesus is maybe getting at here is how many in this room have a problem with lust or pornography and have nothing to hold them accountable on this device every single day? If it's the cause of temptation, cut it off. How many in this room or watching online struggle with food addiction. And they do nothing to find accountability and help. If it's the cause, it's a great thing, it's a good thing, so is this. But if it's the cause of temptation, cut it off. I mean, how many in this room um, struggle with a lack of time with God which God clearly calls us to, he longs for, he, he, he commands it of us. And you're so good at scheduling your whole life. You never miss a meeting at work. You never miss a soccer game with your kid or a t-ball game with your, with your kid. But how many times have we made excuses for years saying, I just can't nail down a time with God. Man, what is it that's hindering that, that's causing you to step into that? Cut it off. How many of us struggle in the room with, with, with materialism? I love stuff, and man, I just want to get more stuff, and I want to climb the corporate ladder and have a bigger house, and I need a boat, and I need this, and I need that. And all that stuff's good until it's a part of an idol in our own heart of materialism, and yet there's no generosity flowing out of your hands or your heart right? Because the greatest way to overcome materialism is generosity and giving away what God has stewarded you with. But man, I struggle with materialism my whole life and 
all of my money is just for me. What's the temptation there? The cause that needs to be cut off. You go to materialism and comparison. And how many hours do you sit scrolling social media, comparing? It's the cause of temptation. Cut it off. You're getting my point. This is what Jesus is getting at here. He's not saying there's no hope. Like I said before, you're going to be living in a sinful world until one day you are part of the eternal kingdom of God for all of time where there is no sin and everything is made right in the presence of Jesus. But until that point, right, he doesn't demand perfection. If it was perfection and he didn't want us to sin, I mean, there'd be no reason for him to come and die and give his life for us, right? Jesus came into a broken and sinful world to which we live in. He experienced it and then he gave his life knowing what we're going to be a part of. He's not expecting perfection for you. Right? Second, man, the, the language here is all about, and I'm, I've, been, I've, been, I've been keying at it, but I want you to see it. It's the cause. The word there is scandalon, the stumbling block. Right? Jesus knows the devastating effects of sin. He knows that you're living in the present world where sin is everywhere. He's not calling you to remove all sin in your life for all of time. He's call, calling you to remove the cause, the struggle the temptation, the things that constantly move you towards sin. And he's calling you and he's calling me to a life of repentance, that when those things come in, I'm just moving into repentance of of turning from it. Man, I've been struggling with this for so long in my life. Anger, so it just comes up when me and my wife get in an argument or me and my husband get in an argument or me and my friend get in an argument. And what is the cause of that? Am I going to deal with the cause or am I going to keep saying, like, it's just who I am. It's part of who I am. I'm an Enneagram 8. It's fine. You know, like, whatever it is. Or are we going to say, no, I'm going to repent of that. I'm going to sever the cause to the best of my abilities. I'm going to walk this direction towards believing that Jesus has a better way for me. On October 31st, we, we celebrate in America Halloween. Some people call it Reformation Day. It's the day with which Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the door of Winterberg, in Winter, Wittenberg, excuse me, Germany, challenging the Catholic Church on its sale of indulgences. I don't have to get into all of that, but one of the first one still speaks true today in his 95 thesis, and it says this, when our Lord... And Master Jesus Christ said, repent. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The reason why I bring that up and what he meant was that your life as a follower of Jesus is a life of repentance. Repentance is not a one-time act. When you gave your life to Jesus, you repented of your sin. You turned, what it means, you went towards Jesus. You placed your faith and trust in Christ. And you followed him with your life. But you still have days where you turn back to sin. 
And those are the days where we repent again. Lord, I repent of the fact that I believe this is better than what you commanded me. I repent of the fact that I trusted this to give me all that I can only find in you. I repent of this and I'm turning and believing, Lord. Again, you are better than all of that. Not that you're getting resaved or replacing your faith in Jesus. You're, you're, you're repenting of what you're walking in and turning and believing again that Jesus is better. Jesus' ways are better. What he's called you to is better. So here, we embrace the posture of repentance in life. And for you, if you're here online or if you're here in the room, then the first act begins by placing your faith and trust in Jesus and repenting of your sins. If you're here today in this room or you're online and you've never in your life taken before God and said, I am a broken, sinful individual and my sin separates you for all, me from you for all of eternity, what you did for me on the cross covers me by the blood of Jesus and I place my faith and trust in you and all that you did on the cross and that you didn't stay dead, you rose victoriously and man, I ask that you save me, I repent of my sins. That's your first response. That's your first act of repentance. If you don't know what that means, you're joining us line, put a comment, we'll reach out to you. If you don't know what that means fully here in this room, I want to have a conversation with you. And then us as believers, it's a lifehood, it's continuing to move forward in repentance. I said at the beginning, I love archery. Like I said at the beginning, the aspects of what's on your bow that you can see right in front of you may not seem that big of a deal until you begin to shoot out and a little degree off. The further you get out, gets majorly amplified. I'll tell you today in this room, the brokenness and sinfulness in your life might look just fine with you in your individualistic heart and life. But the further you get out in influence, the further you get out in relationship, the further you get out with your family, the further you get out in this community, the effects of the brokenness that's here has massive implications out there. And today, Jesus is calling us in this room to take serious our sinfulness and our brokenness, and to step in to repentance. Maybe your sinfulness is, man, I, I, just, I just don't really, I haven't really cared what other Christians feel or experience, and I've maybe been leading other people to sin in their own lives. I never really thought about it that way. Or maybe it's like, man, I just know. Jim, I love it. The Holy Spirit is the best preacher. You already know the thing and your own soul, and your own heart, and your own life that needs to be repented of today and to step into belief that Jesus is better, right? How can we move forward in conflict resolution and living a peaceable life if we can't even take serious our own sin? Here in a moment, the, or the band can come now. We're going to end the service today by taking communion. Hopefully you got an element at one of the doors. If you didn't, you can go get one here in a moment. It's no big deal. The band's going to come and sing, and I am not going to lead you through communion today. I just want you to sit. I think one of the greatest ways that we can be reminded of our own sinfulness is brokenness, is to see what Christ has done for us. Here at Woodside, once a month, the first Sunday of the month, we spend time remembering very specifically by taking communion like Jesus commanded us to, and we take communion together. We're going to do the same thing today, but I want you to sit as the band begins to sing. 
and I want you just before the Lord to say, search my heart. Is there ways that I, man, I'm doing nothing wrong and sinful, but it's had impact on other people, my kids, my family, whatever it might be. Or God, is there some actual brokenness in my own soul that I've refused to deal with? And today I want to repent of that before I take communion unworthily, as the Apostle Paul says. That with a clean heart and a clear conscience, I go before the Lord and say, thank you, God, for what you did for me so that I don't have to walk in sin so that I can have a relationship with you for all time. And when you're done taking communion, spending time with the Lord, stand and let's worship God together in this place. So let's pray together, if you would. I'd maybe ask you to put your hands out, you know, to put them out in front of you, but just on your lap, the sign before God. Say, God, what are those things, Lord? What are the things that are in the deepest parts of my souls that other people in this room don't know? What are those things that I know you already spoke to me about, God? God, give me the faith and the belief that you're better than that. God, I repent of those things. I'm not going to be perfect, Lord. You know that, but I, I repent of those things to continue to move forward walking in the ways of your kingdom. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Today we take communion in remembrance of what you have done for us as you've commanded us. In Jesus' great name, amen.